This uh, commission recommended to uh, the executive board to enter into a targeted dialogue with Brisbane 2032 and the Australian Olympic Committee for the Games of the 35th Olympiad. With no fanfare, a low-key IOC announcement by President Thomas Bach, the 2032 Olympics have effectively been awarded to Brisbane. It was an unexpected moment of the week and Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk was delighted. It's a new norm, which means it's a game changer. We don't have to build huge stadiums uh, that are not going to be used in the future. But why was the usual bidding contest scrapped and Olympic host nominated without the dramatic contested elections we're all familiar with? We'll analyse that and talk through the rest of the week's sports news on this edition of Sport Unlocked. Hello and welcome to the podcast analysing the biggest sports news issues in the week ending February 26, 2021. I'm Rob Harris and alongside me as ever on Sport Unlocked is Martin Ziegler at the end of a week when there were finally some developments on the lifting of lockdown in England and some encouraging news for sport. Yes, I mean, in terms of the return of fans, um, very interesting news. It's going to be May the 17th, which obviously is in time for the Euros and potentially having fans back for the last weekend of the Premier League season. And also back alongside us this week is Tarek Panja. You excited to see stadiums getting full again? Absolutely. It's a return to normalcy. Also excited and surprised to join you guys again. Um, another week with you two locked in our homes. So Ziggs, when do you think the first moment is we will get the fans back in the stadiums? Although they announced May, there is a potential that we could have some fans back in April, isn't there? Yeah, so they, 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 they announced a research programme the government did, which will start in mid-April, and that is going to have pilot events with a smaller number. So it's 10,000 fans after May the 17th. Before that, the pilot events are potentially smaller numbers than that. So you can, I think there'll be various sports looking into pitching to have their particular matches, planning for and working out how fans can return safely. Um, and I think the FA Cup final and the Carabao Cup final, they're going to both, both of those are going to be pitched for to have some fans back in, that's for sure. Because the thing that I suppose is still a bit confusing is whether after the June date when all social restrictions are eased, stadiums can be automatically full or whether it's going to require still some sort of testing or proof of vaccination before they can be completely at capacity, as in what will it take for the finals of the Euros, the semis and the final at least at Wembley to have 90,000 packed seats? It's not automatic, is it? No, it's not. So June the 21st is the earliest that all restrictions can be lifted. But if you speak to people in the government, they think it's very unlikely that at Wimbledon tennis, at the Euros, that you're going to have capacity straight away. Um, things may change completely if the vaccine proves incredible. But um, the plan at the moment is to try and ease the restrictions. So, for example, you might have Wembley half full, 45,000. And UEFA actually would be absolutely delighted with that because from where things were looking, a few weeks ago, they would actually bite their, their hand off to get that. And Tarek, we had yet more discussion this week about what will happen to the Euros. And uh, from an unlikely source, perhaps uh, suggesting the format might change. Yeah, um, someone sent Twitter on a frenzy, which it doesn't seem that hard to do these days, does it? But yeah, 
saying that the entire tournament um, will be played in England. That was um, news to people at UEFA because as far as they're concerned, at this moment in time, at the time you're recording this podcast, which is all we can go on, it's still going to be in the 12 cities as, as planned. And I suppose they're kind of used to that now as well because we've had Europa League and Champions League um, taking place um, throughout this season all over Europe and it's largely been, been, been trouble-free, even even recently where home teams have been unable to to host their matches. We've seen most of the Premier League teams playing their, their home home and away games in different parts of Europe and it it seems to have worked from a from an operational point of view. It has obviously upset people in the sense of away goals and technical issues like that. But you know, it can be hosted and I think UEFA are comfortable. So maybe we all um have err on the side of calm, wait for the news as it develops and look, who knows, it might might be in England, it might be in twelve cities, but at the moment it's 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 twelve cities. It might be elsewhere. I think right now, during the pandemic, I think the lesson we've learned is can we just sort of chill out a little bit and, and, and wait and see what happens? And what we've seen is all the flexibility in terms of moving Euro, uh, moving Europa League games, Champions League games. But the way France-Scotland Six Nations game had to be postponed because of the outbreak in the France squad is a reminder actually that on the continent, the situation is not improving necessarily in the way it is in England at the moment with cases coming down and the vac- vaccination programme. So there's a different pace of the rollout of the vaccine in Europe and in terms of where they are in the second wave as well, which could influence what happens with the Euros hosting decision, which doesn't look like anything will be final until April. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. Um, so what do you guys think about this um, passport business? Do you think with, with, with more people being vaccinated, etc., in terms of opening up and maybe increasing capacity. Do you think there is a possibility? They were talking about nightclubs, but what about sports arenas um, with, with, with a passport? I think there's, a, there's some serious questions around that about whether it's discriminatory to have a vaccine passport. I mean, there are some parts, I was reading something about parts of London where the take-up of the vaccination is, is as low as one in 10 due to the, the fact a lot of the the communities perhaps don't understand English isn't their first language. They don't understand what's happening, or that the messages aren't getting through somehow. And so, actually, if you're if you're saying you can only come in if you have a vaccination passport, I think that's quite a serious thing to say to somebody in terms of human rights. So I'm not sure that will happen. But I know I know some countries are going down that route in a, in a big way. So maybe I'm wrong. There are some people who don't like vaccines, aren't there? I mean, the, the, the whole MMR debate, I mean, most people think that was, um, you know, people who are anti-vaccines are a, a, a sort of a minority cult almost, but they still have their rights. And are you saying that they should be discriminated against, they can't watch a football match just because they disagree with having a vaccine themselves? It's, it's, a, it's a good question though, isn't it? I mean, in terms of this this pandemic, it's it's something uh, we've not lived through. I guess if we all decided we didn't want a vaccine because it's something I disagree with, how do you open anything up? Well, of course, we had the intervention from a potential podcast listener, The Queen, in urging people to get the uh, vaccine this week and to, to think about others in doing so. Why do you say potential? It's role? not been ruled out as far as we know. We probably need to check on <laughs> with the palace if she is, but it is available to her to listen to. Um, and I'm sure if there's one member of the family who could be listening, it's uh, the IOC member in her family, Princess Anne, who would 
normally have a vote on where the Olympics goes. But this time round for 2032, the decision seems to be taken behind the scenes out of our hands. This is a change to the, the whole election process for Olympic cities, which was brought in a couple of years ago. And it, from what I can see, I mean, it, it, it seems to hand, hand all the power to the president of the IOC, Thomas Bach, and, and his close allies, because Queensland has been identified as the, the priority host city or the favoured choice. Um, I mean, it, I'm sure it'll have to be rubber stamped by the whole IOC. But there's, to me, so many questions why you're sort of taking the whole um, transparency out of, the, out of the, the whole process and letting a hundred odd IOC members vote on five or six different cities. This seems to be completely at odds with what's happening at FIFA, which has just changed to allow 211 countries to all vote on the Men's World Cup hosts. And yet we have the IOC choosing their preferred, preferred city based on a working group headed by John Coates, the Australian, close ally of Thomas Bach, who effectively seems to have um, chosen his own country's city, which, I mean, it just seems almost incredible to me. This is the thing that, between Olympics, that sports fans can see, the, the visibility of the IC is the bidding contest, the excitement, the envelope reveal, the drama of who's going to host the Olympics. And... That open democratic process seems to have just completely vanished now and been replaced by this behind-the-scenes negotiations, the, the like we used to normally in Formula 1 with Bernie Eccleston in the past, just going round venues and seeing who works for him in terms of a host city. And, you know, it basically this seems to deny the opportunity for any other countries to be part of an open bidding process. Yeah, Ziggs, you said it, it's, it seems incredible, but it, it doesn't, does it? It's so in keeping with how these sports organisations are run. It, it's another example of um, conflicts of interest galore at the top of major sports institutions. I mean, John Coates is a very interesting figure. 30 years the head of the Australian Olympic Committee. Is that normal? 30 years for someone to be in charge of? An organisation like that, should it be normal? And then, you know, John Coates also um, on top of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is funded in many ways by the IOC, which rules on many cases involving the IOC. John Coates, again, being put in charge of this panel for future Olympic hosts, knowing full well that John Coates' other hat, the Australian Olympic Committee, is might be putting a bidder through and it did with with queensland here it, it just screams um perhaps cronyism and, and a small group of people having way too much power at the top of sports and maybe um all of this was done fairly and squarely but it's what it shows isn't it it's the perception of all of the things that are wrong i guess um with how sports is governed today. We talk about it pretty much every week on, on this thing. Here's another example. Maybe Queensland, if it was a bidding competition, would have had the best bid anyway and would have won won the process. But my point is, if, if, if Queensland was going to be in this race, why is John Coates involved in, in formulating the, the kind of arrangements that lead to his own bid being picked? 
it, it's a it's a question. It's a question that the German um, uh, bidders. I think um, there was um, at least one bid from Germany. Some ministers have spoken up about a lack of transparency, etc. And again, it's the IOC's image that is smashed again, isn't it? Um, as it is FIFA from time to time because of things like this. And FIFA, the ones who, as we mentioned, seem to have cleaned up their process. The fact they've opened out the voting to the whole membership, all national associations. The bidding process, you get all the published documents now on the assessment scored of the host venues and human rights, environmental policies as well. And like we did with the 2026 World Cup bidding, we can look at where Morocco fails. We can look at the, ch the challenges in North America and they're all laid out, and then you can see as they reach the conclusion. Whereas now, we don't know what's gone on behind the scenes, clearly, in terms of reaching Brisbane. And also, it means that the Middle East loses out once again. There's no Middle East bid. There's no African bid, not that the one's one muted, but it means the Olympics has never been staged on those two continents. The rings feature in the logo. Doha had been bidding, or certainly been interested in a bid. But probably what it helps the IOC avoid is, of course, the rights questions over somewhere like Qatar and staging a World Cup there. And the fact they managed to have what seems like a simpler bidding, uh, a simpler host in terms of th they're saying 14 venues are already in place in Brisbane. They're dealing with a, um, you know, a, a democratic country as well. There, there is a devil's advocate with the bidding competitions up into Tokyo 2020, Rio 2016. Um, have been marred with corruption allegations as well. When you have a, a bidding contest, often you run the risk of um, some murky behaviour, shall we say, taking place behind the scenes that lead to decisions. There is an open investigation into Tokyo 2020 and, and, the, and the leaders of Rio 2016 have been charged, and I think awaiting trial for, for, for allegedly um, paying bribes to African officials to, 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 get, to, gather that, um, to gather those votes. I guess in, in one sense, the IOC is maybe clearing the decks and preventing something like that from happening. I'm sure that's part of the reason, because it's embarrassing for the IOC and they've looked at ways they can lessen the, the embarrassment risk to them from all these things. And I mean, talking of John Coates, I mean, when you're as long in the tooth as me, um, when I first started working in sports news and all the IOC corruption inquiry around Salt Lake City, it actually emerged in 1999 that John Coates had paid um, Afri two African countries something like uh, $40,000 to um, as what he called a gesture of goodwill. Actually, it was $70,000. And uh, it was on the eve of, eve, eve of the vote, they... Um, this money was made and I mean at the time you know questions were, were, were raised I think it was came down it was decided it wasn't a bribe but it was a, a gesture of goodwill but you know this is the guy still he's still he's still there now isn't he and he's still um, calling the shots. Well let's hear again from the IC president Thomas Bach who held a press conference after designating preferred bidder status on Australia for the 2032 Olympics. And my AP colleague, Graeme Dunbar, asked about the role of John Coates in this whole process, which is leading to Brisbane following Paris and Los Angeles as Olympic Summer Games hosts. Um, a question about good governance and you know the perception that 
a, um, a new process for bidding has sort of immediately rewarded the IOC official who's most closely identified with shaping the process in its creation. And, you know, there has been off and on over the last decade of, okay. um, you know, the wisdom of having IOC vice presidents running uh, WADA and CAS and, the, you know, the, uh, the perception for, for those, the reputation of those organizations, even given all the consultation you've done with the UN and the World Bank, do you have any concerns about this sort of perception of, um, you know, whether you're meeting best practice governance standards in for an international organization in sport? Uh, Mr. Coates uh, has not uh, taken part in any uh, kind of uh, discussion uh, of uh, the IOC executive board uh, concerning uh, the uh, reports of uh, the future host uh, commission or related uh, directly or indirectly uh, to uh, uh, the Olympic Games uh, 2032. Uh, uh, and all this is uh, supervised uh, you know, by uh, our uh, compliance uh, department, who at uh, the beginning of every meeting uh, is uh, uh, clearly explaining which uh, member of uh, the IOC executive board uh, uh, is uh, conflicted uh, with uh, regard to, to different uh, interests and uh, is uh, therefore uh, excluded uh, from uh, the uh, uh, from uh, the concerning discussions. Well, just as Australia will now face no opposition for the 2032 Olympics, Thomas Bach is running unopposed for re-election as IOC president in March. He will receive another four-year term. He was first elected in 2013. But for many sports fans, even though he's one of the most powerful figures in world sport, so many probably won't be even familiar with him. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think Tarek and I were at Buenos Aires at the IOC commission when he was elected. Um, a former international fencer, but as you say, he, he's a bit of a sort of faceless character. Now, I'm sure if you went to most people in the street and asked who the head of the Olympic Committee was, they would have no idea. They would probably say it was um, Seb Coe. But uh, it's um, but he he's somebody who's uh, I think at, when he was elected, at the time there was sort of people thought he was a sort of safe pair of hands. Um, but actually what it's turned out is that uh, he has drawn a lot of criticism for being basically protecting his own interests in many ways, um, not dealing with issues like the, the Tokyo bribery. Um, and uh, I, I would say he, has, he, has, he certainly hasn't been inspirational. He, he plays the grey man really well. Like you could be in a room full of suits and he'd be another one and you'd just walk past him. Um, and, you know, he also strikes me as a bit of an old school character, particularly, you know, you said, yeah, he was an Olympian, yes, uh, fencing. Uh, but he's also from the horse dazzler school. Um, so that's really, really old school. This is kind of the modern, the way these sports organisations are, are structured today. It owes a lot to the former... Adidas man, horse dazzler, um, and his marketing strategies. Um, Bark was one of those guys, uh, and he very much is a politician carved, hewn from the same rock as 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 the Havalanches of the past, as the Samaranches, etc. He knows the 
the machine inside out and I guess he, he pulls the strings from, from inside the, the um, you know, multi-million dollar lakeside headquarters of Lausanne, you know, building um, a team of, of loyal lieutenants around him. We mentioned John Coates earlier. You, you could name um, others as well who always appear on the same committees, always seem to be in lockstep and make decisions that seem to, to favour the organisation. He doesn't um, like conflict. He doesn't like um, too much um, debate, at least public debate, about decision-making and direction. And, and, and that's how things have been, very much um, an old-school character, it, it seems. And, you know, you, you mentioned um, the ethics um, inquiries or non or lack of them. You mentioned Tokyo there. I mean, who knows any? Who knows much about the IOC's ethics committee? How it um, derives decisions? It, it says very little. It often says we are monitoring developments. This matter is subject to legal action. Name the jurisdiction. So we are waiting, and then nothing kind of happens. And then if something was going to happen, it happens in a murky way, where often people do this thing called self-suspend themselves. And then a decision doesn't need to be taken by the IOC. You know, again, you've got to give FIFA some credit here, I guess. We, we talked about that their ethics um, decisions might be quirky and, and like hard to understand, but at least they're published. We can read them. Uh, you couldn't say anything like that about the IOC. And I don't think um, um, their, their ethics had Pacorette Zappelli, who's been there for years, rarely, if ever, it speaks to the media. No, that's right, Tarek. It's, in fact, um, one of the, the guy who was known as the kingmaker, Sheikh Ahmad from Kuwait, um, who lots of people credited with helping back get to be IOC president. Uh, interestingly, he, he is um, due to have a court case in Switzerland this week, which might have been potentially embarrassing for Bat's re-election. If something had happened about uh, with him and... Um, with one of his main supporters, but that has been put back until after the election because one of the defendants um, came forward without any legal representation, so it had to be adjourned. Um, here's, that is a classic case of where the Ethics Committee have said they're looking into things, the Ethics Board of the IOC, but nothing has ever emerged from it. Some people might be irritated with Thomas Bath this week are the PRs and consultants who suddenly have been denied a lot of business with the 2032 games being carved out for Brisbane. And of course, they're returning to Australia, the games, only uh, 32 years after they were held in Sydney. Does that mean perhaps there's some hope of the Olympics returning to the UK soon, despite only hosting them in London in 2012? 2040 Olympics coming to London, isn't it? <laughs> after after the 2030 World Cup and then the Euros this year, right, Zeke? <laughs> yes, uh, That's the headline. Well, actually, the 20, I, I'm joking, I may be joking, but actually, the uh, UK sport is looking uh, at a long-term bid for the Olympics again, um, uh, in a very general sort of way. Um, and I think you know, they are, they are talking about 2040. It's ridiculous that we're looking so far ahead, but there we are. Is it fair for the UK to get it again before other countries have even had a chance to? Other continents have not necessarily 
hosted the Olympics, the fact we've still not had a Middle East Games, we've still not had an African Games, and these are games that have been running since 1896 now. Would we feel comfortable? Or should it, or should actually, should they move on to just taking it to the most logical and easiest place to stage it, rather than it being about sharing it around countries or yes. around the continent? Well, yes, in a word, yes. The cost of these things are astronomical. It's such a waste of money. We're talking about billions of, of dollars. There aren't very many countries who could justifiably afford these events. And they're getting more and more expensive at every turn. I know the IOC is talking about revamps, etc. But, you know, if you are a developing country, um, and even if you're a developed country, there's so much more um, relevant infrastructure you, sh you might want to be spending your money on that will do uh, be for the greater good than hosting a two week party. Although, you know, London 2012, being from Britain, from London, it was great and a lot of fun. But, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars and in Britain's case, billions of pounds that, that's gone into this um, jamboree, etc. You know, I, I think the people who say, you know, maybe you have four or five fixed host cities and it rotates around this. You, you have you take it around the world still, but you don't have to keep having these astronomical costs of hosting games. And and these are costs that is largely met by the public purse. The IOC has these demands, etc. Hardly puts its hands in its own pocket uh, and then moves on. I think I think the time has come to rethink these events. Tokyo is already about two hundred percent over budget. Yeah, in interesting point. Um, there's there's been more things c coming out this week about the 2022 Olympics in Beijing and the, the leader of the Liberal Democrats has called on the government to, to boycott those games. Um, who is the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tariq? No idea. <laughs> Rob? It's Ed Davey because I actually have a clip lined up and we can now hear from what he asked uh, Boris Johnson in Prime Minister's questions about the 2022 Olympic. Beijing will be the first to stage both the summer and winter games. Today, millions of Uyghur people in China live in fear under a cruel regime. The BBC, international media and human rights NGOs are all reporting on forced labour camps, women being raped and sterilised and families being separated. This is a genocide happening in front of our eyes. So does the Prime Minister agree with me that unless China ends this genocide, Britain and Team GB should boycott the Winter Olympics in Beijing next year? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, the uh, right honourable gentleman is absolutely right to highlight the uh, appalling campaign against the uh, Uyghurs in uh, in Xinjiang, and that's why uh, the Foreign Secretary, my the Foreign Secretary, has uh, set out the policies that he has, the package of measures to uh, ensure that uh, no British companies are complicit in uh, or profiting from uh, violations. Uh, we're leading international action uh, in the UN to hold China uh, to account, and we'll continue to work with uh, the US friends and partners around the world. Uh, to do just that. He raises a point about a sporting uh, boycott. We're not normally in favour uh, of sporting boycotts uh, in this country, Mr Speaker, and uh, that's been the long-standing position of this government. Over in the United States, though, this week, the White House kept the door open to a potential boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Here's what happened when President Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked about whether or not Team USA 
should boycott those Olympics next year over China's repression of the Uyghurs. Republicans on the Hill and including uh, Nikki Haley, the former US ambassador to the UN, are urging President Biden to uh, uh, not to participate in Chinese Winter Olympics. Has the president taken a decision on that? Uh, there hasn't been a final decision made on that. And of course, we would uh, uh, look for guidance from the U.S. Olympic Committee. So what do we make of those transatlantic differences? The White House not ruling out a boycott, but Boris Johnson firmly against some government order for athletes not to go to China. No surprise, really. I don't think that Boris Johnson came out saying that. It's lots of, I, I think, generally, although the, the Thatcher government was in favour of the, the Moscow Olympic boycott, I think success the government since then and whatever colour have always shied away from boycotting Olympics. So that's not a big surprise. I was just remembering actually when Boris Johnson went to Beijing for 2008 Games and he was, uh, he arrived I think a couple of days after it started and uh, there's a press conference and uh, he was saying, what, what, what would you have done differently about the opening ceremony for, for London um, with, with London in four years time? And uh, he like looked, thought for a bit, and he was talking. And then he thought about the, the scandal about the the girl at the opening ceremony who was miming the singing because the other one had had dropped because her teeth were crooked. So she said, uh, "He said, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done the big switcheroo with a girl with a buck teeth." <laughs> Wasn't he also going on about whiff waff as well? That, that was his. Yeah, that's right. We invented whiff waff. Uh, not the Chinese, it was the English who invented ping pong, ping pong, but he called it whiff Um Yeah, it was, uh, it was the start, it was, that, that to me was the start of the, of his pathway to where he is now, at number 10. But he's not at a sports stadium named after him yet. No, which is all the rage, certainly in India. 100,000-seat stadium in Ahmedabad where um, the shortest test match in living memory is just played. England uh, beaten by India inside two days at the um, newly named Narendra Modi Stadium. The Indian Prime Minister, who's actually from Gujarat, decided to... um, name this stadium after himself which um really raised some eyebrows um i guess it's um well it's a bit of a show-off and i guess if you've got a massive spanking new shiny stadium and you've got a, a, a test match with england why not why not name name the stadium after yourself if you like that sort of thing in india there are many many arenas and buildings named after uh, prime ministers and former leaders, etc. But that normally happens after they've left office, and it's an honour that's bestowed on them. But this guy seems to like to celebrate himself whenever the opportunity arises, and he's got this particular style of leadership, almost similar to the Gulf uh, monarchs in some way, where you build new, tallest, shiniest things and um you know stand there and, and collect the acclaim uh perhaps it's it's the sign of our times where we celebrate the self more than we've ever done before he's also quite a prolific tweeter did pick up you did say that in living memory but we might have some 
listeners who were around in 1935 for the last the previous Shorters Test match. Yeah, that's right. Zeke, the, the, the TV rights there, Channel 4, uh, well, you know, how do you think they, they, they've done? Obviously, they've had the last two tests have, have finished very early. Um, how, how disappointed would that be, given that there's so much fanfare made about them actually getting these, these, these games? Well, I think especially this most recent one, because of this was the this was the, uh, the the time zone where it was going to be most attractive to viewers, wasn't it? Instead of having the four a.m. start, now actually you can people can get up at a decent hour and watch the cricket uh, all the way through. Um, but yeah, as you say, it was um, short-lived, and uh, yeah, there's bound to be some disappointment in terms of that because Channel Four will have been hoping to have their fixtures schedule packed for um, double that length of time. So uh, it's one of those things with cricket, isn't it? I mean, I, I think it's going to be a long time before it comes a test series back onto terrestrial TV, perhaps. The, the Cricket Australia have got the tender out for the Ashes at the moment. Um, that's a, a five-year tender. It looks like Sky and BT Sport will go head-to-head -head for that. There's even suggestions that Cricket Australia might test the water with a 10-year deal, but... Um, I think see, that seems unlikely um, unless they get some a really really good offer for that. But I think with the, the climate as it is, I think five years is more likely. Well, talking of time spans, there's been a big winner this week following FIFA's decision three years ago to place a ten-year limit on prosecuting bribery cases. The investigation into Franz Beckenbauer has been dropped. The World Cup winning captain and coach was subject to an ethics probe along with fellow Germans behind their country's staging of the 2006 World Cup. The investigations began after a report more than five years ago when Der Spiegel magazine claimed the bid had a slush fund of almost 7 million euros to buy votes. So what do we make of the collapse of this high-profile investigation? There's a great tweet from uh, your colleague Graham Dunbar, um, I thought on this, uh, Rob, where he said that FIFA drops the ethics case against Franz Beckenbauer because... A statute of limitations for bribery had expired. It had expired because FIFA decided in 2018 to time, li time limit bribery prosecutions. Effectively, it stopped it, prevented itself from dealing with this case. I mean, the cynic in you might suggest that this is so they don't have to wash some more dirty linen in, uh, in public. And FIFA were really irritated when I wrote the story in 2018, which revealed they'd suddenly changed the ethics code to impose this time limit it seemed highly questionable why it was in place, given how hard it is to prosecute these cases. And it can take a long time to uncover wrongdoing. They went and put a whole statement out expressing problems with the report, even though it was fully accurate, just comparing one version of the ethics code with the old one, which showed they'd suddenly inserted this new time limit. They also removed the word corruption from the ethics code. They... Um, said that wasn't significant at the time but then later on they restored corruption to the ethics code yeah and you know this they they published the um the written reasons as well and they were scathing about the conduct of these guys so they've done a full investigation and found that they probably did do all these things that they've alleged to have done but we can't do anything about it begs the question if you knew there is a time limit what the hell was the point of doing that entire investigation as well that all costs money. You know, if you know you're not going to be able to sanction them, why do it? It just seems like a, a verdict that might suit all parties here. 
FIFA get to say, oh, look, you know, we've done a thorough investigation. We're new, we're shiny. We take these things seriously. And we found these people who've done X, Y, and Z. On the other hand, these guys get away with it. <laughs> and, you know, the whole world moves on again. It just seems a bit of a farce, doesn't it? And even more so because uh, his lawyers told FIFA last year that Beckenbauer wasn't a position to participate in lengthy oral questioning or any proceedings. But then FIFA, even they realised that actually what was Beckenbauer doing attending public events and giving interviews last year to celebrate 30 years since he managed West Germany to victory in the 1990 World Cup. And, you know, they even point out he didn't appear to have any memory problems when it came to looking back on old football matches. But amazingly, thinking back to the bid, it was it'd be too hard for him to deliver any recollections. Yeah, we've all we've all done a lot of work in the, in the last 15 years on, on FIFA and it's problems with uh, transparency and corruption and deals, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there, there's been lots of crooks involved in that, lots of lots of people who've been uh, involved in mismanagement and lots of people who've had who've got these outstanding allegations against them. And Franz Beckenbauer is one of those. And actually, he's got some really serious allegations against him. Um, I'm sure there's been massive delaying tactics so that he actually doesn't have to answer any questions but um he's uh he's somebody whose reputation has has definitely been sullied by his involvement in these affairs one of the reasons they said um franz beckenbauer couldn't uh, participate in the hearings or or speak to fifa's investigators was because he had um some issues with his mind um he got a, essentially a medical note saying he was suffering from um, a disease of the mind and, and wasn't in a fit state to um, participate. However, FIFA's investigators pointed out a number of occasions where Beckenbauer was fully cognizant. He, he participated in a ceremony celebrating, I think, the uh, 1970 World Cup, all sorts of other public gatherings. They were wondering, well, if he's fit enough and lucid enough to speak at all manner of events, could he not have called in or done a Zoom for half an hour to explain his actions? Um, yeah, and that's and that's how we leave it. Another unsatisfactory ending for another football investigation. I guess people are just not going to be surprised anymore. And when you're an organisation that's trying to, you know, turn over a new leaf and say we're different everything's clean, there's process, etc. These things really um, are a hammer blow. You know, every every few weeks, there's another one of these. And a lack of clarity, really, from the FIFA ethics side in terms of us being able to question them publicly. Ever since, really, we had the big blow-up in Bahrain at the FIFA Congress in 2017, when effectively the Judge Eckhart and the investigator Borbley were um, ousted. Yes, the blow up in Bahrain. That that was a that was that was a bizarre situation, wasn't it? They they uh they, they, to be fair, they they played to the gallery a bit. Those two guys as well. Um, you know, particularly um the the, the investigator Borbley, He was he was kind of promoted after um Michael Garcia, the former United States attorney, uh, walked away from FIFA saying, you know, these people aren't serious about ethics. Borbley stepped up and, and did quite well for himself from the back of it. And um, 
they they were going to be replaced. They knew they were going to be replaced, but decided to fly to Bahrain and um, hold this press conference for the um, you know aforementioned blow up in Bahrain. But you know it is FIFA land, and all these sort of crazy things you know happen on a semi regular basis, I guess. And just now, Gianni Infantino is marking five years as FIFA president, something that we hope to look at in more depth in a future show. So if you've got any questions about his reign or any thoughts about how he's done as FIFA president, you can tweet us at Sport and Lot or email sportandlotpod at gmail.com. Well, that's all we have time for on episode six of Sport Unlock. Thanks again for listening and enjoy your sports viewing in the days ahead. Goodbye for now. <laughs> <laughs>